agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you today? I'm hanging in there. How about you? I'm good. It's Saturday. Best day of the week. (laughs) Absolutely. Saturday once again. You know, before we get started today, I just want to thank our newest sustaining supporters on Patreon, Chris, Mudge, and Daniel, as well as Robin and Tim, who recently increased their level of support. And uh, Mudge wrote in to say, I'm finally joining up to support you guys. Mike going out on a limb to talk about China was what finally pushed me to do it. I also feel like it's the only real thing I'm worried about with a Biden presidency a relaxation of policies toward China. Can't wait to see what you all have to say about it. And I'm sure that's going to come up certainly in the future. And yeah, that's a that's a concern I have as well, as I mentioned last week. Um, and Daniel also wrote in to say, your show offers such a broad spectrum of opinions on a variety of topics, which is refreshing in our world of isolated thought islands. I thought that was nice. Thanks, Daniel, for that. And also thanks to Ben, who recently made a contribution to the show through PayPal. We appreciate that. Of course, as a Patreon supporter, you'd only get that second full-length episode every week, midweek. You also get ad-free versions of all our shows, as well as a bunch of other things at different levels of support. Check it all out, politicsguys.com slash support or patreon.com slash politicsguys. And of course, as I always point out, we don't want to make inability or difficulty with uh, financial stuff, a barrier to getting all of our content. So if there's an issue and you just can't afford to support the show, but you'd like to get the content, just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will make sure you get access to everything that we're putting out. All right. And with that, why don't we get started with our first story today, which is going to be a brief thing. And really, it's a thing that I don't know, in a way sort of puzzles me. And that is Donald Trump at a rally in Pennsylvania on Thursday mocking uh, Joe Biden for wearing a mask, saying things like it gives him a feeling of security. If I was a psychiatrist, I'd say this guy has some big issues. And and I guess it, it seems odd to me because President Trump seems to go back and forth on this issue. But I'm trying I'm struggling with trying to understand how to view this in any way except for is just being incredibly irresponsible. I mean, I feel like Donald Trump can certainly find ways to mock Joe Biden that also don't have a potentially negative impact on on this, you know, severe pandemic that we have. And, and I guess I just I'm trying to understand in a way that doesn't just assume that Donald Trump doesn't give a damn, but maybe you can help me out with this because I'm frankly baffled. <laughs> well, I, uh, what I told you when you when you brought this up, what I told you was that I probably wouldn't have a ton to say about it. Um, but I, but it, it's funny because the more I thought about it, the more I was thinking maybe it would help to um, talk to people who probably viewed this more favorably than I did, um, just to sort of play devil's advocate, because that's kind of like what we do here on yeah. the politics, guys, is we're trying to, you know, we're trying to like understand other people's opinions and you know sometimes i can wrap my head around it and um 
and, uh, you know, kind of go about my business, even if I disagree. I think that's the beauty of shows like this. And, and you know, people who study policy largely, you know, they can talk to people calmly and rationally and at least like understand where they're coming from, even if they don't agree. And sometimes I just can't. You know, sometimes I, you know, I talk to people and, you know, they they are so like set in their ways and their opinions don't really make sense to me. And I try, but I fail. And so this was one of those situations where, you know, I have a lot of friends who are also Trump supporters like I am, um, but are far less critical of the president. And, you know, you and I have talked on the show a lot about the whole the, the idea that the president is really inconsistent with his um you know, with his mask wearing, but also with his statements regarding mask wearing, it seems like he goes back and forth. And I, and for the record, I, I, I agree. Um, I think he's been inconsistent. I think it would be better to, you know, you know, have a consistent message when it comes to something like mask wearing. But I did talk to a couple of my friends, um, just in a text group about this who are, you know, uh, who thought that this was hilarious and I didn't, I, I, it kind of went over my head. I was watching the rally and I kind of went, Oh, okay. This, you know, his hyperbolic speech, but I, I talked to my friends and they were saying, you know, he's, I think the the ultimate conclusion I came to was that he's just really playing to his base. Um, you know, for better or for worse, he's, you know, we've talked on this show about the fact that everything is really political, especially during an election year. And I think it's just that. I think he's playing to his base. I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> it's not. Um, but I, you know, I think he's playing to his base. I think he is also, you know, working hard, both sides work hard to paint the candidate as whatever their narrative is. And in this case, um, he's working hard to paint Joe Biden as somebody who's weak. And um, I think this came, one of my friends noted that this came after a couple of different situations where Joe Biden was clearly alone in a room or maintaining like more than, you know, the minimum uh, social distance, um, giving speeches. And he put on a mask. Sometimes he's told by uh, his handlers and his staffers to put on a mask. So I think it comes across as maybe a little disingenuous to those people. But I mean, I would say this is where they're coming from. Not that it's what I believe, but it's, a, you know, an explanation as for why yeah. he said it. I do think it's inconsistent, though. So I, I agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, looking at the pictures of the crowds in, in uh, Pennsylvania, I'd see almost nobody wearing a mask. And certainly it seems like the, I, I just again, I, I I just have a hard time understanding how somebody who believes the science and understands the threat could could countenance that sort of thing and i just uh, find it just horrifically ir irresponsible but uh, again i guess it doesn't surprise me at this point but it's it's hugely disappointing to me still which weird um anyway uh yeah i, I didn't think we talked about that for very long but uh, I, I so no. why, why don't we just kind of move on to a much uh, not not a weightier story. story. I mean, this has you know serious public health consequences potentially. But uh, that law and order sort of it's it's kind of become a theme of this campaign. Yeah. So there's been just a lot of talk, like you said, about about law and order. Um, and I had actually written down here. I jotted down some notes, and I put it's become a major, not only a major campaign issue, but almost a bit of a slogan um, in with the Trump campaign. If, for those of you, I didn't get to, I wasn't on the show last weekend, but it was, you know, right after the Republican convention. And, you know, um, I, I actually watched all four days of the Democratic convention and all four days of the Republican convention, just, you know, as much as I could, at least the, the primetime speeches. And I know, you know, one of the, the recurring themes, like, like you had mentioned, especially at the Republican convention was law and order, law and order, law and order. You heard it a lot. 
So um, this week, just to uh, kind of extend that, uh, Trump and Biden both visited Kenosha, which has been the site of just massive uh, rioting protests, but also these riots. I think it's important to make the distinction over the past few weeks following the death of uh, Jacob Blake. And the bigger questions uh, regarding these visits and also just the, the bigger issue of law and order is how important were these visits? How were they perceived? And um, you know, how important are these riots, the growing unrest as it relates to safety and security? And will it impact voters um, as we approach November and, of course, Election Day? How big of an issue is it? Is it overblown? Is it something that's, you know, resonating with people and how those visits were perceived? So I guess I'll turn it over to you and maybe get some of your thoughts first and then I'll give you mine. <laughs> sure. Well, one thing I, I want to point out and there's been talk, especially from what I've heard on the right, saying, why hasn't Joe Biden come out against violence and so forth? And Donald Trump certainly has. I just want to point out that uh, to everyone that Joe Biden repeatedly has come out against violence. In fact, a few days after the, the, these protests started in the very beginning of June, Joe Biden you know, said there is no place for violence, no place for looting or destroying property or burning churches or destroying businesses. Uh, so. And he said that again and again, but that gets that message gets lost. And certainly the emphasis is different. I believe that Joe Biden's approach is more more balanced. He calls that out. But in that same statement, he called out again. You know, he called out uh, police escalating tensions or being excessively violent and that sort of thing. And uh, I feel that the message on President Trump's side has been almost all one sided. For instance, you know, Donald, President Trump uh, declined an opportunity to meet with the Blake family, whereas, you know, Joe Biden did and and talked with Jacob Blake and so forth. And I, I think, you know, you talked about on the mask thing, playing the bases. I think that, you know, we, we see a lot of that here as well. Definitely. Um, I, you know, I, I think that anybody who was watching, especially the the Republican convention, I don't know a lot of people actually that watch both uh, the the Democratic convention and the Republican convention. I, I think I was one of the only people that I knew. Um, you know, I think there were obviously. I think it was it was you know split amongst along party lines. I should say so. Democrats watching the Democratic convention, Republicans watching the Republican convention. But there was a stark contrast. Um, whereas I had sort of hoped that the Democrats uh, in their in their convention had talked more about law and order. It really wasn't something that was brought up, I think, enough, especially for an issue that seems to be sort of slipping away from them, at least in the, in the public eye. I mean, there, there are a lot of Democrats um, who have become disillusioned with what's going on. And I think, you know, an issue like law and order is something that really hits home for a lot of, you know, Democrats in the heartland, a lot of like blue collar Democrats, people who, you know, live in communities that are affected by this violence. You know, um, I think it's something that they see every day. And of course, it's flashed across their TV screens. I'd hoped that it was something that was brought up more um, by the Democrats. And I think if I was a Democratic voter, I would have I would have wanted that. I would have been waiting for that. The Republican convention seemed to talk about it almost to the point where I wanted to raise my hands and say, okay, we have a lot of other things we could be talking about. I was hoping we would touch more on things like China. I was hoping we would touch more on, on other issues. There, there are some other, uh, you know, policy issues that probably deserved more time and attention. This is obviously the juggernaut though, because it takes up our news feeds. You know, if you turn on the TV, especially, you know, primetime news shows and the pundit shows, eight o'clock, 
o'clock, nine o'clock at night, this is what you see. It's all over social media and it's really all anybody's talking about. And with good reason, I think it's making people feel very vulnerable. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I tried really hard to put myself in the shoes of, of a democratic voter. I'm, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I live in the suburbs and I would imagine that it was something that I would have wanted to hear more of at the democratic convention. And I know, you know, you said that, you know, Biden's uh, condemnation of the violence kind of went unnoticed and kind of under the radar. I think that's true. But I think a lot of people on the right are kind of casting a skeptical eye, and I include myself in, in that group, towards um, like Biden campaign staffers contributing to the bailout funds of people who were active in those riots and committing crimes. And then some of the statements made by Kamala Harris just just didn't ring true. It seems kind of like they're condemning the violence. Um, but then sort of, you know, I guess in the same breath, um, like like you had mentioned, pandering to their base, you know, maybe maybe they're doing this because they don't want to come out too strongly against people who might support them. And, I, you know, this is something that happens on the right, too. Um, but I just I, I wish there had been a stronger, more consistent statement defending, um, you know, the protest, the peaceful protest, which is something totally separate than condemning the riots and the violence. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's interesting to me with all this talk about uh, the Donald Trump talking about Joe Biden's America and, you know, what seems obviously Donald Trump's America where you won't be safe. But what's lost in all this is, I think, the fact that if we really are talking about this in terms of uh, policy and how policy matters, we should be talking about not Joe Biden or Donald Trump's America, but Ted Wheeler's uh, Portland or, you know, Kate Brown's Oregon, because because law and order policing is almost exclusively a state and local function. And so this idea that the president of the United States has this massive power to restore law and order. I mean, Donald Trump was sort of trying to slyly take take responsibility or credit for bringing in the National Guard, which, of course, he didn't. He was just trying to latch on to that, you know, by conflating National Guard and federal assistance. But that federal assistance is tiny. And when we actually start to look at what's going on and who has responsibility, if people are concerned about this, then the thing that, that the the thing to do that's going to make a policy difference is not electing a different president or someone, you know, whoever. The difference yeah. is going to be, you know, the org or Portland City Council or the Portland mayor or the, you know, the governor of Oregon. And that gets lost in this. And so it seems kind of not really bizarre. I get it. But. The idea that you would base a national campaign on almost exclusively a state and local issue. And and I get it. It makes sense to me when when the economy is, you know, has hemorrhaged, you know, over 10 million jobs since the pandemic started and went, hey, we have a pandemic and uh, uh, you you go with what your strongest issue is. And it seems pretty clear that that Donald Trump believes that law is his strongest issue, even though it's not actually, for the most part, a federal policy issue. Yeah, I, I'm actually really glad that that you brought this up because I think this is something that, like you mentioned, gets lost um, in in all of this is the importance of local and state elections and the fact that we've really sort of drifted from that. I mean, most of us watch 
the the big national cable news shows. You know, most of it, most most viewers pay attention to those shows more than they pay attention to local news. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of us still watch local news, but so much is decided on the state and local level and not on the federal level. And I think that, um, you know, you mentioned Ted Wheeler. I'm thinking of like Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I mean, you know, obviously you have Gavin Newsom, you know, these sort of big city mayors and these, um, you know, these state governors, local officials and state officials, I think that there needs to be more of an onus on them and that there needs to be more of a focus on what they're doing, because I think there are some pretty clear distinctions, particularly in the Democratic Party. And I want to make this clear as a Republican and as somebody who does not vote for Democrats. I think a lot of Democrats are furious with very good reason at people like Mayor Ted Wheeler and Mayor Lori Lightfoot, because I think um, they have gone so far to the left. Um, You know, they're talking about there, there are these rampant riots and all of this destruction and chaos in their cities and in their states. And then they're, you know, they're going a step further and talking about, you know, possibly defunding the police and doing all of these things that, that leave the citizens of their city and in some cases their state completely vulnerable. And I, I, I think, I want to hone in on that because I think it's something that's lost. And I I think it's something that we need to refocus on as for Donald Trump sort of taking credit for it. I guess, um, in, I guess you're right in the sense that, you know, Donald Trump taking credit for something that's really the responsibility of the, of a, you know, a state official or a local official calling in the federal government to help, you know, he's dangled this like a carrot in front of, especially Ted Wheeler, who's, you know, kind of become his punching bag on Twitter. You know, all you need to do is call, you know, call in the federal troops and the federal troops will come in. I mean, this is typical, and I'm not saying it's right, but it's typical Trump hyperbolic speech and it's an election year. This is something he's riding on. Um, but more importantly, you know, I think there are a lot of Republicans who are up for a lick election who are kind of also flying this banner, you know, it's for more localized positions, representatives, state representatives, mayors, governors who are saying like Republicans are the party of law and order and Democrats are not. And so I think that's creating like a, a, probably a more relevant disparity between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, another thing I wanted to, to bring up here is uh, obviously it's it's impressive to me uh, in a way that Portland, uh, at least some citizens of Portland, have been able to put so much passion and energy into this. And clearly, there's a lot of anger and a lot of desire for change. And I, I and I don't know, I don't have any data on this, but I hope that some of this energy and passion is being directed toward things like voter registration and turnout drives and volunteering for campaigns and door knocking and all that. Because I believe that if, if you want real change, those are the things organizing as opposed to just marching. And I think that's part of it. Those are the things that need to happen. I mean, if we take a look historically, uh, even in recent times, minority turnout, voter turnout is well behind white turnout. And it turns out actually that research that I've seen suggests that Restrictive voter ID laws, suppression, that really doesn't explain a whole lot of the gap or doesn't explain it too well. And so I think, you know, the more the more people can also do those kind of more mundane, boring sort of things that don't give you that charge, that don't feel good, but that are, I think, in the end, much more going to be much more likely to lead to change. Uh, I think that's super important. And, you know, there are, I think, things that can be done 
there are demands. I mean, I've, I've seen demands like, well, you know, Ted Wheeler should resign. Well, that's not going to happen. I get, I get where that's coming from, mm-hmm. but it's not going to happen. Or just generally calling for equality or completely defunding the police. That I don't think is going to happen either. But there are things that could be demanded that could happen that might make a difference. Like, for instance, you know, this issue of body cameras, right? Wasn't in Kenosha that they didn't actually have body cams because of the, of the cost they were going to be implemented and that sort of thing. And we know that a lot of smaller police departments just have essentially not gone that way because it turned out it was going to be cost prohibitive. And I did a little research on this and it turns mm-hmm. out that if, if the federal, that we could, we could give every single law enforcement officer uh, every single full-time law enforcement officer in this country, a body camp and pay for the upkeep and maintenance and storage for around uh, a little bit under $2 billion a year. And, and in terms of the federal budget, that's, that's like nothing. And so here is, I mean, is that, is that going to solve everything? No, of course not. But it's the kind of concrete step that actually doesn't cost a whole lot in terms of federal money, certainly when we're spending all this. And I'd like to see I'd like to see the the energy and the passion directed toward concrete things that we can do. And I get that that's boring and incremental and so forth. But I think that's how we move forward. And and I'm not seeing I feel like as much of that as I would hope to see here. Yeah, I you know, this morning I woke up really early for some reason this morning and I I um you know obviously I I looked at the news first I just started um you know scrolling through all my my normal you know typical reads that I look through over the weekend and you know the the typical like you know opinion writers and you know just kind of seeing what happened overnight because um, there's obviously been a lot happening at night when when we're asleep especially on the east coast and um I was really jarred because uh, there was a last late last night, there was a riot that took place in Rochester, New York. Um, I don't know if you saw it. It, it, it just kind of made the news like early this morning. Um, there were uh, there were BLM protesters. There were Antifa protesters. Um, they were waving Antifa flags. You know, they had BLM signs. Um, uh, there were there were protesters who were who were marching and then several groups of them kind of converged on this like main drag in Rochester and they started yelling and screaming started off I watched the video they were yelling and screaming at the people who were dining outside they were dining outside they were yelling and screaming various things and then it became really ominous and and it obviously got dark and we've seen this play out over and over again lately what ultimately happened is a group of them it's like the 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 energy you know it just like it's like it becomes like a monster and it feeds upon itself and a bunch of these people ended up storming the restaurant. They started breaking windows. I mean, it was a group of hundreds of, of, of people, rioters, and they started flipping over tables. People were running away. And these weren't just, you know, pe- white people necessarily. These were, you know, a, it was a pretty diverse group. It's, a, you know, a downtown area, lots of different, you know, cross sections of people. People were running because they were scared. Um, they started flipping over tables. They started smashing glasses. They started breaking plates. And I, you know, I watched it, I watched it once. I couldn't watch it again because I just, when I see those videos, I hate watching them. You know, it um, just makes me sad. Just makes me, you know, sad about the, the state of things right now. Really depressing. But I watched it and I thought to myself that I wanted to bring it up today. But I think, again, it's important to make the distinction. These aren't necessarily the protesters who are doing things the right way, who are going about this the right way. 
And I applaud a lot of those peaceful protesters because they have tried to make changes. Um, they have tried to influence, you know, votes speaking truth to power, registering people to vote. But their voices have been drowned out by these rioters who are, you know, making headlines on both right and left wing sources. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not exclusively on Twitter or just on Fox News. I mean, I was looking on CNN and MSNBC and then these are the videos you're seeing. And this is what is getting the attention. And they know that. And, you know, these people have co-opted these peaceful movements that were, you know, movements for good. I supported those those peaceful protesters. I thought what they were arguing in in many cases was correct. Um, you know, there does need to be fundamental change uh, when it comes to things like police brutality and, you know, systematic racism. But I, you know, I'm watching this and I and I'm thinking to myself, this happens again and again and again. Go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and you know, in terms of sickening video, you know, you see the, I mean, this is all in Rochester and in, in uh, following the release of body cam video of, of through a public records request of, of Daniel Prude, who you could see, you know, on, uh, you know, he's surrounded by, uh, by police and he, he's, he's handcuffed and, you know, he's wearing this hood and so forth. And, and it's a, it's a very disturbing bit of, bit of video. And, and so, you know, we're seeing it on both ends, but to your point, being, you know, the, the protesters and these, these violent people who are kind of hijacking, I absolutely agree with that. And some of them, I think, are people who aren't necessarily all that ideological. They're just, they just like to, they just like to break stuff and throw things. Yes, and, chaos. Yeah, they, yeah. exactly. Chaos yeah. people, whether it's, at, whether it's, uh, you know, Antifa or Patriot Pride or what, what, or just people who are just unaffiliated who just, want to see glass shatter. You know, there are people like that and they're drawn to this sort right. of thing. And that's a, uh, that's a big problem for sure. Yeah. It, I just, I think it's important. Um, you know, when we, when we move forward, the thing I'm not seeing happening is that is a clear divide. You know, I see some people making the distinction, talking about how these movements have been co-opted, but I think it's easy to watch a video like that. I guess this is where I'm going with this. It's, it's easy to watch a video like that. And especially if you're a person who's voting on these law and order issues, whether you're a Republican or you're, you know, a Democrat, maybe you've become a little disillusioned one way or the other. Um, and you watch a video like that. And, and the first thing that, that pops into your head just realistically is like, what if I go out to dinner? What if I'm out to dinner with my family or, sure. you know, my my partner, my spouse? And this happens. What would I what would I do? And, you know, last night we went to uh I, I went to Bass Pro Shop uh, with my kids and my husband. We, my kids love to fish. They wanted to buy lures and stuff. And we passed by, you know, the ammunition and the, the, uh, the, the gun department. And I mean, there, there was no ammunition on the shelves. And I think it speaks volumes to everything that's going on. People are scared. They're scared. And I think, um, you know, even if, you know, I look, I look at the, the polls and I've seen, I've seen various polls done, done by various, you know, polling organizations about the importance of law and order, how much of a difference it will make. Obviously, you know, the, the number of people voting based on law, you know, the law and order issue is going to vary between the right and the left and, you know, depending on the poll and when it's taken. But the fact that, you know, you've got, you know, ammunition selling out at, at, at stores, the fact that you've got people who are scared, these videos are trending, they're going viral. I mean, I think this is going to be a bigger issue. And, and to your point, um, I think it is really important for these groups who, who really do want change and want to bring, a, want to bring it, you know, into the forefront peacefully, but, you know, want to give it some relevance and some importance, do things like uh, voter registration drives. Yeah. I mean, that, that is really how these movements are won. I watched it, you know, the 
for better or for worse, this is how the Tea Party made a name for itself, is they, they really did a good job of, of outreach and voter registration. Um, and arguably, that's why, you know, the Tea Party was kind of responsible for a lot of Republican victories in 2010. So, you know, I just I wish that the peaceful protest voices would drown out the, these chaotic rioters. But I just that's just not what I'm seeing right now. And it's a shame. You know, you mentioned uh, being being conservative and watching the videos of these riots and, and that reaction that you have and a lot of conservatives have. And I, I think I have a I have a, also a reaction to watching video. But mine's mine's a little bit different. What, what I, I think of it like this, I think. Whenever there's a, a riot or, or a protest, we hear about all of those of, of any of any sort of significance. Those get those get covered. Mm-hmm. But then I see something like like the uh, you know like the Blake or the Prude or, or that sort of video, and I think for every one of those that we're seeing and that we only are seeing now because there are some departments who have body cams and we can get the video or there happened to be somebody with a phone who pulled it out and was able to get a shot. How many of those are we not seeing? And I think, you know, it's probably an awful lot. And that's what, that's what sort of gets me, uh, makes me concerned. And obviously as a white male, you know, I'm not, this is not the sort of thing that affects me nearly as much as it affects as it affects uh, uh, black males, especially young black males. And so that's kind of my reaction. And and secondly, to the you know crime issue and the fear, this has been well documented that people almost always overrepresent how much crime there is. And while it's true that in, in a number of cities, murder is up. It's also true that in the 25 largest American cities, overall crime is down relative to last year. And even violent crime is down relative to last year. And in fact, if you look at overall overall trends, even including murder, we see the, the country is a far safer place than it was even 10 years ago or so. But people just, you know, you, you don't see news reports about, hey, no murders tonight is our lead story. You get all the, the coverage of that. And so a lot of this fear is almost entirely unfounded. That doesn't mean it's not real to the people who are feeling it, but it's it's almost entirely unfounded. And I think that's important to point out. I think that, uh, I think I'm going to have to disagree with you <laughs> on this. So I, um, I remember over the the Fourth of July weekend. I mean, obviously the 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 these riots had really started to break out, um, sort of spun out of control from these peaceful protests protests that were going on across the country. And I remember over the Fourth of July weekend, and forgive me, I don't have the statistic, but there were uh, hundreds of people shot in the city of Chicago. And and the thing is, I I get your point, and I, and I'll I'll give you the fact that violent crime is violent crime, and that it's it's always been a presence, particularly in large cities. You have people, you know, clustered together, large populations. You have you know, um, you have a lot of, you know, crim- a lot more crim- criminal activity going on in a city like Chicago, a big city, as opposed to, you know, the, a, a small town or, you know, the middle of nowhere or something like that. So obviously you're going to you're going to hear about these stories um, because they make for good headlines. You know, whether they're good stories or not, they make for good headlines and, and they get people to buy newspapers and to watch TV um, and to read stories online. But I think that um, rather than saying this is something people should be afraid of. Now, I think this is just something that we need to keep in the back of our minds, period. 
um, when we and again, we've we've talked about, you know, reforming police and and possibly, you know, devoting more funds to hiring, um, you know, good police officers, you know, devoting more funds to increased training and, uh, you know, uh, psychiatric help and, you know, body cams, you just mentioned body cams. I think that's important and that can't be lost in this either, but it needs to be part of the the bigger picture. I mean, yes, I think there's a, a genuine fear. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a, a smaller woman. I'm not very big and I don't really have any self-defense skills. Um, but, but I own a gun I carry. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, I bought the gun, um, because many, many years ago I was assaulted. And, uh, you know, after that, I was scared. I, I was able to escape. Um, but I but I carry now because of it, because it's you know, it's it's something that that makes me feel better. Thank God I've never had to use it. Um, but I think a lot of people feel that way. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, the media focus on this right now, this, you know, seems to be an issue every couple of years. There seems to be this big hyper focus, like you had mentioned on violence. And and while I don't think it's necessarily gotten any worse uh, lately, like in the last couple months, I think it's just more prevalent in our in our news feeds. But it's something we should always be concerned about. Um, you know, no matter, you know, especially, I, I think, especially if you're, um, a person of color, or if you're a woman, it's something sure. that should always be in the back of our minds. Um, and I, and I think it, it should be part of the conversation, part of an ongoing conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an important issue, but I think it, it is dwarfed by say the importance of, you know, several hundred thousand people losing their lives to, uh, the coronavirus. And I get why the president wants to make the focus on violence and law and order, which, again, I agree is an important issue, but the, clearly the issue is an issue on which he just doesn't poll very well. In fact, it's the, the biggest, I think it's the biggest difference in terms of favorability uh, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden for, for undecided moderate voters more than anything else. And so, of course, he's not going to focus the conversation on that. I mean, why would he? Right. Well, I think it, I was watching, um, I don't remember who I was watching, but they were doing a, a poll aggregate. And it's funny because we we always say every two years, every four years when an election comes up that people vote with their wallets. And just when I was starting to think that maybe that wasn't the case in this election, maybe this election would be different. You know, I'm just interested, not from a partisan perspective, but just as a political junkie perspective, like what, you know, what is the issue? I was thinking, you know, maybe it would be something like law and order. Maybe it would be something like coronavirus. But the issue overwhelmingly, again, was the economy. And I think it just goes to show you that these these are probably the three big issues coming into this election with the economy leading the way. Um, and then the other two issues, you know, depending on the voters, is going to be of varying importance, I think, between the right and the left and obviously amongst independent voters. But, um, yeah, I, I think probably if if if, uh, if both of these candidates focused more on the economy and what they would do for the economy, something maybe a little more forward thinking, maybe we, maybe we could have a better conversation. And, and you know, it, it, I agree with you that those are the three issues. And it's interesting that, uh, yeah. well, you would expect, I think, it's not surprising that Biden has a big lead on the, in terms of uh, the coronavirus issue. On the other two issues, the polling is a little, is, is actually fairly close. Trump in, in, in some polls gets a slight advantage on the economy, which, you know, might be surprising to folks given, you know, that we have over 10 million unemployed since, since the pandemic. But, and also Trump doesn't seem to have a huge advantage over Biden, at least at this point, a lot of polling on the law and order issue. So there's still a lot that needs to shake out on this, obviously, as people start paying closer attention. But, 
but some of these uh, some of these uh positions that that people have are not necessarily what we would uh perhaps expect and maybe that's because we pay a lot closer attention to these issues than you know average average Americans who have lives to live and don't don't kind of immerse themselves in politics all the time Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was I was thinking about that last night when I was thinking about planning for this show about, you know, where it would be relevant to bring that up. But I think it just goes to show you that, you know, even thing, even when things change or they feel like there's this huge like sea change in this ground swell of activity in one direction, things really don't change because at the end of the day, you know, Americans really are concerned, rightfully so. They're concerned about their jobs. They're concerned about their taxes. They're concerned about, you know, whether or not they can put food on the table and, uh, you know, pay their mortgage, their rent, their, their gas and their car. So, you know, these are things that, that get brought up, but they deserve to be brought up again and again. So. Definitely. <laughs> Well, I'm sure we're not done talking about law and order, but uh, but but we are today, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I yeah. So so I mean, it, you know, I guess it. What we just talked about was a bit of a precursor to everything we're about to talk about. So you know, we talked about law and order, and now we're going to address uh, some of the issues related to the other hot topic that we mentioned, which is uh, coronavirus and everything in the, you know, in, involved with uh, coronavirus policies. So the next thing that uh, we wanted to discuss is um, the fact that the CDC, uh, the CDC basically, um, and the Trump administration uh, issued a coronavirus eviction moratorium. So to give you a little bit of background there, the CDC had issued a temporary eviction ban after a Trump executive order, which took place on, it was uh, created on August 8th. And this extended, um, it, this has been extended now through the end of the year. So this two, this past Tuesday, the White House announced a ban on evictions through the end of the year for all tenants whose livelihoods were affected by COVID and may not be able to pay rent. So some of the details with this, all individuals and organizations who violate the order are subject to very steep fines, very, very steep fines. And the eviction moratorium does not apply to those who are evicted for other non-COVID-related reasons, which gives me a lot of questions, puts a lot of questions in my head. But uh, the new ban covers those who can prove they have lost substantial income, are making... uh, I guess their best efforts to pay as much as possible and expect to earn less than $99,000 this year or receive a stimulus check. So there's, it's funny because there's been a lot of bipartisan buzz about this good and bad. Um, You know, I know people on the right are up in arms about this and people on the left, but I wanted to get your take. I I didn't know how you'd feel about this, which side you'd come down on. So, yeah, you know, Jay actually commented on the Facebook, on our Facebook group this week about that, saying that people ask me what might make me reconsider, you know, supporting Donald Trump. And this is that sort of uh, that sort of a thing. And I think obviously what Jay was referring to is, wow, that's a that's a pretty significant government intrusion and not being done legislatively, but through an agency regulation. And and I don't think there's any question that the CDC, uh, it seems to me the CDC has the legal authority to do this sort of thing. But I I certainly know that Jay and I, I would agree with Jay on this, that this is the sort of thing that should be done legislatively, not through some agency regulation. But of course, we're at a point where, you know, talks between uh, or talks 
well, the Senate's not even involved in talks, I guess, but talks between uh, House Democrats and Stephen Mnuchin are just, you know, going nowhere. And so you want to do something. And this is the best that can happen because Congress is essentially just not doing its job. And that's that's a that's a disturbing thing, I would say. Yeah, I you know, when I was reading about this, I, I kind of I don't want to say half expected. I, I kind of predicted quietly that something like this would happen because I think there was this uh, growing political pressure on President Trump. Like, you know, like we've been saying, it's an election year. That's a thread that you have to pull on. I mean, he's trying to capture independent voters and, you know, non non party affiliated voters who may really I mean, this this might really be affecting them or people around them, um, you know, and I think it's it's one thing to to look at this and say, well, it's all politics, <clears throat> because in a lot of ways it is. Um, you know, he could easily point to and he has pointed to the House um, or, you know, Steve Mnuchin or, you know, the Senate and said, well, you know, they, this is this is supposed to be their job, like you said, but the, but they're not doing this. Everything is stagnated and these conversations aren't happening. And so I had to do what I had to do. I mean, this is obviously um, a political point that that he could make and it would be relevant. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I also like Jay have I, I don't think this would make me not vote for Donald Trump, but I, I have a lot of reservations because, you know, again, this speaks to the idea of executive orders and using federal government to, to kind of like wield a big sword where it doesn't need to wield a big sword and, and government overreach. Um, I mean, I obviously have some concerns about that. I don't like executive orders. A part of me, though, uh, thinks that maybe this is one of those situations that I'm going to have to think about. I'm really torn on it um, because I think that there are, I mean, it potentially affects up to 40 million people who rent, um, who may have been affected by by COVID, who may have lost their jobs or had to take, uh, you know, reduced hours or they may be furloughed or or something like that. I mean, this really does affect a lot of Americans. So if you push politics aside and you push these other concerns about executive orders aside, there is a part of me and, and you know, maybe it's like the, the little bit of bleeding heart in me that says, you know, maybe this is something that could really affect people in a positive way and, you know, eliminate the, this uh, this back and forth forever um, and affect people now and, and significantly in a good way. So I don't know. I, I don't I don't really know which side I come down on on this, but I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, in terms of policy, I think absolutely it's, it's a good temporary measure to take, given what's what's mm-hmm. going on. But, you know, my my two questions, of course, the the House passed legislation that would have dealt with this and a bunch of other things nearly four months ago. Uh, the Senate hasn't taken anything up. And, you know, it, it started earlier in the Trump presidency with Mitch McConnell saying, well, we're we're going to wait to see where the president lands on this before we do anything. And now it seems that the st- the stance of of uh, Senate Republicans seems to be, well, we're not going to do anything, even negotiate. A- and even Donald Trump, where's Donald Trump in all this? I mean, he he has repeatedly said that he is perhaps the greatest deal maker of all time in human history. And yet millions of Americans are suffering because Congress can't make a deal. And Donald Trump just sort of what kind of delegates the deal making to the Treasury secretary that that doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that the world's greatest deal maker would do. The world's greatest deal maker would jump in there and work with people and say, look at this deal that I personally negotiated. So I got to wonder if he's maybe not the world's greatest deal maker. <laughs> well, to, to your point, um, I, I think this 
gives him, again, it's an election year. And if I'm looking at this from a, as, as much of an unbiased perspective as I possibly can, um, it gives him an opportunity to be a hero in yeah. all of this. And, it, and and during an election year, this is, you know, so they're trying to get their their brownie points, politicians, you know, presidential candidates, the president, people who are, you know, in these hotly contested seats that are running for re-election. They're trying to get all the attention and brownie points as, as they can. So this gives him an opportunity um, to, to, to kind of jump in and say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. I've been a hero and I've done this great thing. And yeah, you know, it, it the, the credit falls on him, which is why I think, um, you know, a lot of people are, are giving him the side. eye, rightfully so this is, this is politics. Um, I think, I think this is, all, this yeah. is what it's all about. Again, I'm, I don't know, maybe I sound really cynical saying that, but no, no, I have to be honest. I, I think it gets into the other, other thing we wanted to talk talk about with the CDC, and that's that uh, vaccine distribution order. And that that's certainly uh, some people saying it's it's been pretty political as well, right? Oh, for sure. So, um, yeah, so re- related to all of this talk of COVID and vaccines and moratoriums on evictions, uh, the federal government is very eager to distribute a COVID vaccine before the end of the year, or specifically the date that they're giving is November 1st, which is conveniently two days before Election Day. Uh, the CDC announced that governors should be prepared for distribution, like I said, by November 1st. Uh, the Trump administration has asked for the speeding up of approvals, um, and CDC Director Robert Redfield has urged governors to remove barriers to building uh, I'm sorry, uh, remove barriers to building permits for the distri- distribution sites to be constructed and used by McKesson Corp, which has a very sweet deal to distribute this vaccine and all of its subsidiaries. Um, and of course, the Trump administration has given this initiative the name uh, Operation Warp Speed. <laughs> it includes a rollout plan as well as a public awareness campaign. And this is, of course, following meetings of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee committee slated for October. So all of this is, is happening very quickly. Some would say it's you know, suspicious timing. Others would say it's just the way things go. I don't know. What's your take on all this? Well, you know, I think I'm with Dr. Fauci on this, as I usually am. And he doesn't think that political pressure is going to force the FDA to approve an unsafe or ineffective vaccine. And and it seems no. to me that the people who kind of are familiar with the process don't really think this is that big of an issue. Though I also point out that, of course, a vaccine, even if it were available as early or approved as as early as November 1st would only go out to a very small group of people before the election, first responders and, and, and hospital folks and that sort of thing. And not only that, but of course it wouldn't, wouldn't be a cure. I mean, the standard right now that the FDA has, I believe for this emergency authorization is it needs to be 50% more effective than a placebo at keeping people from either contracting coronavirus or having significantly worse symptoms than without. And so that's not going to be a cure-all, even if it's there. And not only that, but I can certainly see from a political perspective where Donald Trump hopes he can announce this as soon as possible, because then he'll certainly say, hey, I've cured COVID. And that's how I'm sure how he'll put it, right? I mean, Operation Warp Speed was the greatest success of anything ever. And now we can focus on law and order and how Joe Biden will destroy the country. And that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, normally I, I would think that would have a greater impact. I think it's going to have less impact this year, this election year than normally, simply because we have so many people voting by mail and so much of that voting is going to be already done 
before two days before the Mm -hmm. election. I mean, it still could have an effect. And I certainly think this helps Donald Trump. More importantly, though, every day that we save in getting a vaccine out, I think helps save lives. And so I think that's that's what we need to keep our focus on. But, you know, when I look, for instance, at the six key battleground states, which I see as Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina and Minnesota, almost all of them have their ballots being sent out like 40 or more days before the election. And so most of those ballots are going to be in and counted for not counted, but in and done with before any announcement of that sort. And so I think that's what's going to really mitigate the effect of this from an electoral perspective is my sense. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, when it comes to things like vaccines, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the medical field and I rely on those I know in the medical field who, you know, have opinions about these things that mean something. Mine, mine means something in terms of policy, but it doesn't mean anything in terms of whether a vaccine will work or not. And, um, I've mentioned on the show before that I have a good friend who is the she's the co-director of the COVID response team at a local hospital chain here in South Florida. And I've been she's been kind of like my I joke around that she's like my personal Dr. Fauci. She's been kind of the person that I that I text, um, you know, and call when it when I just have like genuine questions when I was deciding whether or not to send my kids back to school when I was, you know, deciding whether or not, um, you know, to to go out unnecessarily with a mask without a mask, you know, all, all of these issues I've, I've run by her cause I trust her opinion. Um, and obviously the medical community does too. Um, she's been all over local TV lately, but, um, one of the things that I've asked her about is the vaccine. And I've said, you know, I, she's, she's pro-vax, um, you know, as, as am I. Um, and I just asked her, um, you know, I've asked her about the flu vaccine before. And I said, you know, what, what are the chances that this passes, you know, through the FDA, and this is something that gets approved and distributed, you know, regardless of politics, putting all that aside. And her take was that um, she said, if you put politics aside, the FDA is not going to approve something that's not safe. But she she made a good point. She said, I still have a lot of questions about the safety of something that gets, you know, during an election year that that gets shoved through either by pressure from Democrats or pressure from Republicans and from Donald Trump. I mean, Um, You know, there's all this pressure on the medical community to develop this vaccine and just not enough time to test it. And so, you know, her she's very torn. She said, well, you know, I'm constantly having to weigh like, you know, the I guess the outcomes. Do, Do we do we promote something that could possibly be unsafe, something that we have questions about? Or do we promote something that could possibly you know, save lives. It, it's it's such a it's such like a terrible decision to have to make Absolutely. if you're part of the medical community. And I imagine, I mean, it's just a horrible situation to be in. And I think just a lot of people, whether you're an at-risk person, you have family, you know, elderly family, people with you know comorbidities, or if you have children, um, you know, if you're if you're uh, you know, whatever, if you're just a concerned person, concerned about your health, I think this is a this is a strange situation to be in, because I think what we will see is that there will be increasing pressure to get the vaccine, which is, I think, something that concerns a lot of people on both sides. Will I be required to get this vaccine? And I think that's a valid question, too, in all of this. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, I'm pulling on a lot of threads here again, but I, you know, oh, I just yeah. have so many questions about this vaccine and and, uh, you know, the, the the conversations that the FDA will have. I hope there's a lot of transparency regarding this, it, you know, completely aside from the political ramifications. And right now, I think there are currently nine vaccines that are in phase three trials yeah. or have limited approval, including that one from Russia, where I guess, you know, with the 
they'll, they'll sack Russians. Russia has proved anyway that they're willing to be play pretty fast and loose with safety and human lives and all that. When when Putin's not oh, busy yeah. poisoning Chernobyl. political rivals, he's trying out vaccines on oh. people. So anyway. <laughs> Whole other issue and not really something we get into, but uh, that kind of, there's that other vaccine story that we wanted to talk about, about the uh, the U.S. deciding right not to join an international effort to uh, uh, develop and share vaccines. And I wanted to, you know, well, what's going on there? What's your take on that? All right. So just to give everybody a little bit of background, um, the, this week, the U.S. declined uh, to join the WHO vaccine efforts um, and the Trump administration cited corruption as the reason why. And he has often and obviously uh, White House spokespeople have often accused the WHO of being sponsored, at least in part by China, uh, being sympathetic to China and to uh, actually aiding China in covering up the magnitude of the pandemic, which was happening late last year and throughout 2020. So the, to give you a little bit of background there, the, the this WHO vaccine effort is spread amongst 170 countries. I saw 172 and 170. I'm just going to say 170, um, whose goal is to provide the, the world with access to a safe, effective vaccine um, and, and uh, equally so everybody would have access. The WHO Secretary General has spoken out against vaccine nationalism, which I think is important. Obviously, he's pointing directly at the United States and arguing that uh, hoarding a vaccine will exacerbate the situation. Um, and But then, conversely, the White House has vowed to engage with other countries, but has stated that the U.S. government, and this is a direct quote, will not be constrained by multilateral organizations influenced by the corrupt WHO and China. So I think this all goes back to some of our points, some of the points you you made last week about China, yeah. um, and some of the points we've made on the show about China, and just the the involvement, this like very very, very tense lack. I, sh- I should I can't even call it a relationship, but this very tense situation between the U.S. and China playing right into something as important as a COVID vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think from a, I think it's a safe bet that the United States will have access to a, you know, a, a reasonably safe and effective vaccine early on, given all the efforts in this country. So I, some people are talking about the, the COVAX thing as an insurance policy. I, from that perspective, I don't, I don't really see it. Uh, but the mm-hmm. people, the countries that are pushing most for this are, of course, the poorer countries that won't have such great access. And I think that should be a concern for, you know, for everyone who cares about, you know, human lives and suffering and so forth. And, but, but I think from a strategic standpoint, my question and my concern is, well, does pulling away from this effort, does not joining in in this when it seems like China, it's not, China isn't formally part of it, but they've indicated support for this. Does that only make China stronger? So if we say, well, China's influencing the World Health Organization too much. We're just going to pull out of the World Health Organization as much as we can. My thinking would be, well, isn't it better to push back and assert our influence as opposed to just pulling away and allowing China, if we feel China is corrupt, which I think there's strong case, to have even more international influence? So I think we're going to end up getting just the opposite of what we want. The thing to do when you're concerned about a strategic rival is not to disengage, but to engage more on the international stage and to push back as opposed to just isolate yourself. What do you think? Yeah, I the thing. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that the 
thing that keeps popping up in my head anytime we talk about China is just the fact that it's pretty obvious. I, I don't even think it's like a like a, just an opinion anymore. It just seems like a fact that China is trying to control the, the world supply chain of everything. I mean, this is just this is what they want. They want to be a juggernaut. They want to control the supply chain. And I think that um, they they did. I, again, I don't think there's there's a lot of conjecture here. I think that they did try to do that. They did try to manipulate um, the information coming into the WHO and, and then, you know, the information that was, you know, relayed to the rest of the world via the WHO. I think they exerted their influence. Um, but we, you know, this was a topic that we discussed on a show months ago about, you know, whether or not the U.S. should pull out of the WHO and, you know, reduce, um, you know, reduce funds that we sent to the WHO or just pull out of it entirely. Um, I also think that leaving the WHO and and not being a part of this, uh, you know, I, I get it. I get the, the idea that um, in terms of, uh, you know, nationalism and, you know, pr- I guess protectionism, I get why Donald Trump is doing it. I get the, the message he's trying to send to the rest of the world and to the WHO. You won't have access to this money. You won't have access to American dollars. Um, but I think that, you know, just from a humanitarian standpoint, I mean, the EU has pledged a lot of money. You know, there there are other countries around the world who have pledged a, a lot of money. Um, pulling out of it would, you know, you're limiting the opportunity to exert that kind of control over the WHO and to kind of take back the reins. Because really, the WHO has has, you know, bent and and sort of kowtowed to China. And if we had an opportunity to reassert ourselves. Um, you know, especially when something as important as this is going on across the world, now is probably the time to do it. There's this limited and closing window where we could come in and really assert ourselves um, because the United States arguably is making a lot of strides in terms of getting a safe and effective vaccine out there. And there's a lot of money and effort going on here internally. We could bring that to the world and we could possibly kind of push China out of the equation. But we can't do that if we're not part of this initiative. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, maybe join in this initiative. But, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to, you know, issuing some very strict rules and, you know, conditions as to the amount of influence China can have. Um, because, they, you know, the, the, the WHO has shown us before that they have sort of cowed to China. So now let's set the record straight. Let's be a part of this initiative and let's like control, control the ship. Well, I could I couldn't agree more. So maybe that that's a good place to yeah. a good place to leave it on our total and complete agreement on on this at least. So, uh, but before sometimes we do, we do sometimes yeah, we do so Mike. absolutely. So before we close up, let's why don't we do recommendations? I realized I told Jay last week we totally forgot to do recommendations, and so I, I made a point yeah, of not forgetting this week. So so why why don't you start us off? Okay, so I've been watching. This has made all kinds of buzz lately. Um, if you have the History Channel, if you have Netflix, or if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch this show. Um, I've been totally into this. And again, I'm not into competition shows or reality shows. I've never been into one before, ever. But I l- absolutely love the show called Alone. Have you heard of it? I don't think I have, no. Oh, my gosh. It is so good. So it's uh, it's a show. It's a reality competition. It's been going on for a couple of years, but it's it's widely available now. Um, where these people um, sort of take their chances, they're dropped off alone with limited supplies. They get to choose the supplies in basically like the Arctic in northern Canada, 
and they have to survive. And it's just, I mean, it's just like the, the, the scenery is breathtaking, but it's like this interesting psychological play. And um, it's just like a cool escape. I don't know. I, I love, um, I live in South Florida. So anytime I get to see a part of the world, that's just totally different from my experience and what I see every day is very interesting to me. So cool. I just love this show. It's such a neat show and, and a good escape. A good escape is important. Kimberly and I always try to yeah. find some sort of escapist sort of thing at kind of the wind down at the end of the day. We uh, we recently, oh my God, this it's a gloriously stupid show. Um, something called Relic Hunter, which came out I think in the early two thousand. If you if you want to see how bad, how just ridiculously bad TV can be, uh, check out Relic Hunter. I think you could find it like an Amazon Prime or something like that. Anyone who pays for it would. Relic Hunter? Relic Hunter. Yeah, it's about this. It's about this okay. uh, archaeology professor played by Tia Carrera, who just can't uh, just it's totally <laughs> unbelievable. And it's just the dumbest thing. We we just looked at each other about, about 20, 20 minutes through saying, oh, my God, can you believe that TV was ever this incredibly just outrageously stupid? Um, yeah, it's really it's it's an experience is all I can say. But uh, on a less stupid note, I'm going to recommend an essay by uh, one of the greats of 20th century philosophy, a guy named Isaiah Berlin, called "The Hedgehog and the Fox," and uh, it's it, it's it's about ostensibly kind of about the uh, the philo the philosophy historical philosophy of, of Leo Tolstoy, who's probably my favorite all time uh, author. Uh, and, but but also it's got it's got a lot of fame. Well, probably his most famous uh, famous essay because he talks about this distinction between people who are hedgehogs and people who are foxes. And the idea is that foxes are kind of detail focused and they see the the multiplicity of life in all these ways. And hedgehogs are people who have like one big theme, one system, and one you no know, overriding thing that everything fits into, or they try to fit everything into it and he categorizes various people like you know Shakespeare was a fox and Tolstoy was well Tolstoy was interesting because he argues that Tolstoy was a fox who wanted to be a hedgehog and I totally get that because that's how I I, I identify with Tolstoy on the, on that level because I I I desperately want there to be overarching themes and systems that would make sense of the world. But so often I just feel like it's just stuff happening in random places and, and it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. And I think too often people kind of, kind of focus on that kind of hedgehog view saying, well, there's gotta be this one thing only I can save us or whatever, you know, and, <laughs> and oftentimes the world isn't, like that. And Isaiah Berlin sort of dedicated his life in philosophy, this belief that it's this interplay of different views and no one has all the answers and the right view. And we need to keep that in mind. And so I, I think I've been reading a lot by Isaiah Berlin recently, and I think this essay is a great place to start. And I will post a link to it in the in the show notes. So I thought it was really interesting. Oh, so, I want to read it. Yeah, definitely. that sounds really cool. I it's, it's, read it. Yeah, it's really, yeah. really pretty cool. Uh, all right. So with that, uh, that is it for today's show. But as soon as Kristen and I are done with this in just a minute, we're also going to be on our supporters bonus show talking about, let's see, Donald Trump saying, let them send it in and go vote, uh, voting twice. And <laughs> we'll talk about that. Also, the massive amount of cash that Joe Biden and the DNC raised, as well as, oh, let's see, uh, oh, we didn't get to talk about the payroll tax deferment, which all federal employees now are going to be 
required mm-hmm. to take whether they want to or not. And so all that will be on the supporters exclusive show. And remember, if you're not a supporter already, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys, sign up. Or if you can't afford to become a supporter, just send me an email, Mike at politics and I will get you access to that second weekly episode. Also, we would appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always do it, you know, mail to politicsguys.com. There's our bipartisan politics subreddit, which continues to impress me. And you'll find the URL in the show notes, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Today's show is produced by us, Mike and Kristen, and we will be back with a new show for you next week. We hope you'll join us.